Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, whether or not our voice is uh, shot from having had a cold, uh, we get together <laughs> to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two films from the long career of Jim Jarmusch, a pioneering independent filmmaker with an unmistakable style he's applied to a remarkably diverse array of films. Scott, why don't you put down that hungry man dinner and tell us about tonight's pairing? But this is how we eat in America, Keith. You got your meat, right? <laughs> anyway, um, but sure, uh, Jarmusch's Patterson is now making its way to theaters, which seems like a good time to consider the director's career from the opposite end. 1984 is Stranger Than Paradise was Jarmusch's second feature, but the first to become an art house hit. It helped redefine American independent filmmaking with its bare-bones style, dry humor, memorable characters, and glimpses of underexplored parts of the country. Jarmusch made grainy minimalism play like an aesthetic choice instead of a budgetary restriction, and the independent scene quickly picked up on his approach. And though his budgets have grown and his focus has shifted, he's since made everything from a western to an urban samurai tale to a vampire movie, his style has remained his own. If anything, Patterson plays like a refinement of Stranger Than Paradise's way of looking at the world. Jarmusch's latest film has even less of a plot, as it spends a week dropping in on the life of a bus driver named Patterson, played by Adam Driver, who lives in and drives the streets of Patterson, New Jersey. So, we're going to light up some Chesterfields, consider the loveliness of our Ohio blue-tip matches, and stare blankly at the television as we plunge into Jarmusch land on the next picture show. Is she a TV dinner? Yes, I'm not hungry. Why is it called TV dinner? Um, you're supposed to eat it while you watch TV. Television. I know what a TV is. Where does that meat come from? Really? What does that meat come from? I guess it comes from a cow. From a cow? It doesn't even look like meat. Hey, let's stop bugging me. We, you know, this is where we eat in America. I got my meat. I got my potatoes. I got my vegetables. I got my dessert. And I don't even have to wash the dishes. Okay, everyone, allow me to offer a plot summary of Stranger Than Paradise that leaves out only a few details. John Lurie plays a New York layabout named Willie, or Bela, depending on who's asking. He gets a visit from his Hungarian cousin, Ava, played by Esther Balant, who's traveling from Budapest to Cleveland to live with her aunt, Lottie. Stuck in New York for 10 days, Ava hangs out with Willie and his friend, Eddie, played by Richard Edson. One year later, Willie and Eddie go to visit Ava in Cleveland, then they go to Florida. The end. Uh, the first time I saw Strangers in Paradise was as a college junior on a double bill with Night on Earth. It was 1991, and that was uh, John most recent film. Strangers in Paradise is one of a handful of movies I can point to and say that it changed the way I look at movies. It showed me how much films could do with very little and how the smallest details could take on tremendous significance. I also found it funny in a way I'd never really experienced before. I came to care about these characters who said so little, even Willie, who appeared not to like anyone around him, himself least of all. 
I bring this up not because it's unique to me, but because I suspect this is true for a lot of moviegoers. At the time, I thought its brilliance was primarily as an answer to other movies. Jarmusch focused on the scenes other films don't show, the dead time in cramped apartments that most New York stories don't visit, the long stretches of dull highway unseen in other road movies, the ways people who've grown familiar with one another sit in a room in silence instead of offering one meaningful exchange after another. While I don't think the perspective is wrong necessarily, I now see that this is an incomplete way of looking at Stranger Than Paradise. There's poetry in that roadside desolation. There's a lot being said in those stretches of silence. As much as Jarmusch was working against the expectations of traditional Hollywood narrative movies, he was also drawing from other sorts of traditions. We'll be right back to talk that over. Well, this is it. Lake Erie. All right, everyone, I'm going to let Jim Jarmusch start a discussion off for us. These are some excerpts from his 1984 press notes for Stranger Than Paradise. While shooting the film, someone outside the production asked me what kind of film we were making. I want to tell him that it was a semi-neorealist black comedy in the style of an imaginary Eastern European film director obsessed with Ozu and familiar with the 1950s American television show The Honeymooners. Instead, I mumbled something about it being a minimal story about Hungarian immigrants and their view of America. Neither answer is right, but the question made me aware that it's easier to talk about the style of the film than what it's about or what happens in the story. Uh, Nonetheless, he does kind of try to offer an explanation anyway, saying it's a story about exile, both from one's country and oneself, and about connections that are just barely missed. You know, I I think these are are good points to start with here. So maybe this, what does it mean to be exiled from your country and, and, and from yourself? And how do you see this playing out in the movie? Well, I mean, let me first say I think that his interpretation of his own movie is better than anything I've ever read. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a really great quote. Semi-neorealist black comedy in the style of an imaginary Eastern European film director obsessed with Ozu and familiar with the Honeymooners. That is, that's the film. I mean, yep. that's the film to an absolute <laughs> T. And I also want to echo your thoughts or original impressions of, of the film, which were mine, too, and I think shared by many. It's so strange to think of a film this you know, minimalist, I guess, and this seemingly unambitious, but quite quite ambitious as revolutionary. But it really was. It really was a bolt from the blue that changed the independent landscape and the film landscape forever. And then, you know, in a, in a huge way. And there's plenty of films that followed that were in that mold or attempting to be in that mold, many from Jarmusch himself. Yeah, that quote is so exciting because, I mean, we, we talk to creators about the films that they make all the time. And sometimes I find myself wondering, why am I doing this? Because you find out things that kind of change how you experience the film in a bad way. Sometimes talking to creators about their films proves unenlightening or disappointing. You realize that you were reading things into it that aren't there and like you're creating the art yourself and the, the director isn't meeting you halfway. And then sometimes you read something like this and you're like, he knew exactly what he was doing and he did it perfectly. That's just, it's always a great experience. I think he's calling his shot in terms of the Ozu thing. I mean, there's a reference, at least to one horse that's named Tokyo there Story. Are, there are three horses in a row that's Passing Fancy late spring in Tokyo Story. <laughs> I all. didn't catch Passing yeah. Fancy. Okay. Yeah. Now See, I feel bad. Yeah. I thought I heard just Tokyo Story. I was like, I really would travel across <laughs> state lines to bet on Tokyo Story. But... You, would, you don't want to bet on an Ozu named horse. That horse is slow. I mean, <laughs> it's beautifully rendered, and it says a great deal about the existence of life, but that horse is, is slow. It's not coming in first. Okay, that's true. <laughs> so that, that's a very good point, Dasha. Okay, but I mean, getting into your actual question about exiles, I think part of what's going on here that's so interesting is that some of the exiles in this story have taken on identities for themselves that very strongly define them and define how they interact. And like, it seems the just very evident that Willie has defined himself as a New Yorker Mm -hmm. and he's defined himself as like a solitary man who lives by certain rules involving how he gambles and who he believes he is. And he is really irritated to have somebody come in and impinge on that. It's not clear whether part of that irritation is somebody coming in from the old country 
with familial expectations. But it does seem pretty clear that like he he wants to be left alone as a New Yorker specifically. And then Ava comes in and she has she has music that she loves. She has a, a particularity of language. She t- keeps talking about this thing bugs me <laughs> or she'll talk about Screaming Jay Hawkins and how he's a wild man. And uh, it's the music that she loves. And she's very particular about the clothes she wears, which give off a very specific vibe. She's really annoyed when somebody impinges on that. I just I find it really interesting how these exiles have created who they are that has nothing to do with their home. It has everything to do with where they are now. Aunt Lottie, by comparison, seems very old world, <laughs> certainly in the way she deals with Eva. So I, I think there are kind of two kinds of exiles here, the people who know who they are and it's a new thing they made and the people who know who they are and it's an old thing they don't want to give up. Well, and the English language is kind of the delineation between those two. Because, I, I mean, like one of the very first words out of Willie's mouth are speak English, please. And he's very adamant that he does not want Ava speaking Hungarian. And later on, when we get to Cleveland, we see Ava only speaking English in response to Aunt Lottie's Hungarian. The language itself is kind of used as a demarcation line in that respect. And his name, too. I mean, she yeah. Ava first greets him as Bella, and he, he just immediately yeah. like, no, that's not my name. Well, and like, I, I can't remember if this is explicit in the film or if we're just led to believe that Willie slash Bela was born in Hungary. He is, he is an immigrant, um, but he has a New York accent. Like that, that is an accent he has taught himself, has mm-hmm. given himself in order to establish New York as his true home rather than the country they gave him his real name. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too, because Eddie is clearly his sidekick, but he's probably seems to have learned everything he knows about dressing from <laughs> right? Eddie or, or people <laughs> like Eddie too. Yeah. They do actually kind of look like each other too, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a, I, I think is probably pretty intentional. But you, Keith, your, your thesis here is that everybody's an exile. How do you see Eddie as an exile? Like what oh, do you make of him? That's Jarmusch's uh, thesis. But yeah, I think if he becomes an exile though over the course of the film, doesn't mm. he? I mean, he, he leaves New York, doesn't necessarily want to go back to New York. He wants to see these places where he, he knows are beautiful. Somewhere there's a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a theme that carries through a lot of Jarmusch's work. Uh, Down by Law has maybe is maybe even the sharpest example mm-hmm. of, of that Buckaroo Banzai line: "Wherever you go, there you are." That sort of thing, where it's just like it doesn't matter whether they travel to one place to another; that their world is doesn't change all, all that much. And Down by Law, it's the difference between the interior of an apartment in a jail cell, right? Yeah, <laughs> and they look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, it's the same sort of bleak wintry landscape in the four walls and the cot and there's really not a huge amount of difference difference between new york and cleveland and then florida well, i think the black and white it contributes to that that well, sense too in terms of just creating a uniform look across all of these different places environments and part of that environment is also just poverty mm-hmm. i mean we're we're looking at people who are you know, spending $50 a week on everything that they're experiencing. Like there are people for whom $600 is immense riches. So we go from, you know, a, a kind of crappy little rundown New York apartment to a kind of crappy little rundown Florida place, kind of crappy little rundown Cleveland place. All of these places are just defined by like how little money they have and how how little they can afford to go to places that might be considered beautiful. But it doesn't really portray poverty as necessarily a burden. You know, it's just like kind of a way of life. Like I, I think like there's a sort of cinematic way to almost romanticize poverty if it is like the point of the film you're trying to make. And I don't think that's the case here. I think it's just part of the world that these characters are in and its attention isn't necessarily called to it. I don't think that they're romanticizing poverty, and I certainly don't think that they're underlining it. I think it's just the background of the world that they live in. But at the same time, I think that the poverty that they're experiencing is kind of what gives this film its Jarmuschian rhythm. There's always that rhythm in pretty much all of the Jarmusch movies I've seen that's just this sort of feeling of like long days and no hurry and no urgency. And in Only Lovers Left Alive, that feeling is because the characters are rich and immortal mm. and tired of life to some degree or capable of finding joy in stillness. But in so many of the other films, it's just, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a job, you don't have an agenda, the time just stretches out and you spend it sort of finding like low key, slow ways to amuse yourself, which happens a lot here. What I find kind of fascinating about this whole conversation, though, 
is that you know when you talk about themes about poverty and about immigration and about these lives in exile he's not putting any of those themes in your face at all i mean you, you know i mean it's something that when you think about the world of the film and, and, and the characters and and use your imagination and try to picture what their daily lives are like or, or extrapolate from what Jarmusch has given you then you wind up at that place but it's not something that Jarmusch is trying to hammer home in any way shape or form on any of these uh, matters I will say that nothing that we've described so far if you hadn't seen this movie makes it sound like a comedy yeah. and it is yes <laughs> well we could just start quoting all of our famous favorite yeah. uh, moments from the movie because there's plenty of them Although how many of those like lines would work in any way out of context? So much of it is bound up in in the slowness of the movie where you just have these like weird little peaks that happen kind of out of nowhere in the middle of that stillness. The, the cuts are comedy in this or just, yeah. just, you know, just the way the scenes begin and end and fade in and out of each other. It has its own like comedic rhythm. And there's a lot of visual comedy. I mean, I, I, one of my favorite bits in the film is when they're chaperoning a date. With <laughs> <us>. <laughs> <laughs> the shot the shot is them watching a kung fu movie with her date and then between her date and ava is of course eddie and uh, willie it's just a wonderful shot yeah and, and it's a really long shot during which you're just hearing the most horrible screaming <laughs> yeah. off screen the entire time and watching them not react at all yeah and you can, well and you can watch any face in that scene and and be amused by what's going on <laughs> with any of them at any point it's, i love that shot so much and i'm always watching eddie though he's always yeah. he's always the most interesting face on screen to me really i i'm always watching ava yeah i just i find the i guess the smallness of her reactions to the world uh really interesting she just she has this been there done that mm-hmm. seen it all like board of life kind of thing i had no idea maybe. she was supposed to be 16 i oh, thought she was only <laughs> neither yeah yeah I, I yeah i wasn't sure that, that was is that, a, that, that is a war no i i just i found several uh reviews from the is that 16 that, that's yeah 16. pauline kale said 16. it must be in the press notes then, yeah it's not in the oh, film that is one I, I would, world I would we guess like 19 year old. or so but, yeah. but still yeah i yeah. would see i would have said older and i mean 16 to some degree like explains a lot of her her boredom and her jadedness yeah. and her disaffection and her confidence in just like this i this is my music and i love it you've got terrible taste yeah. this is how i dress you want me to dress like that you've got terrible taste like her frankness mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense at 16 or like at 40 than it would at like <laughs> any place in the middle so let's talk about barely missed connections because I, I think that is a, a, a wonderful way to describe what's happening in, in, in this movie and, and maybe in, in a lot of Jarmusch movies where I think a lot of the poignancy comes from watching people and kind of coming to understand these characters and seeing how they just don't quite get each other and they want to. You know, there, you can see these connections that after putting Ava off initially, you can see see Willie trying to make a connection with her and 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 he has a whole business with the dress and he's, he's trying <laughs> and it's not working. But to me, I think that's where a lot of the emotion of these films come from. And I think it's part of what makes Jarmusch so enduring and, and you know his films so returnable. And there's, despite the style, they're not arch and they're not condescending. And, and he really cares about these characters and it's hard not to care along with him. I mean, there are so many attempts in this movie to connect with Ava. Willie attempts it. Eddie attempts it. Billy attempts it. It seems like Aunt Lottie has maybe like kind of come to terms with her and then gets <laughs> pulled away from her. Well, Willie doesn't attempt it for a while. Like the he doesn't warm to her or like entertain the idea of her leaving his apartment until she steals him a box of Chesterfields. But like Eddie invites her to go. Hey, hey, she steals herself a box of Chesterfields. Right, that's right. <laughs> he scams some of them. Also, off also a hungry man dinner. Yeah, she yeah. steals him a TV oh, dinner. That was so great. Yeah. And that's how they connected. But before that, like Eddie, who is someone who I think does want to form that connection with her early on, like when he first meets her, Willie's like, no, she's not coming with us, you know? And I think it's interesting that when Ava's leaving and changing out of her dress, which she has put on over her turtleneck and and black pants, which I love, uh, and and she meets Eddie in the street, you know, they kind of, they say a couple words to each other and then it's like, okay, well nice meeting you and it's like you haven't really met you haven't like you haven't had any substantial interactions yet but it's just those niceties that we perform with people even if we haven't really connected with them or possibly because we haven't really connected with them i mean what is there to say but nice meeting you i mean he eddie just comes across as so hungry when he first meets her and like not in a, a creepy scammy way just kind of like 
hey, here's a like here's a lovely lady who will actually speak to me for five seconds. And he kind of seems like that every time he looks at her, he doesn't have any idea what to say to her. Yeah, I think that's why I say like I, I'm always looking at Eddie because of the trio, he is the most open. Like he is mm. the one like his face is open. He's always got like a little bit of a smile and he's like making eye contact in a way that, that Willie and Ava aren't. Like he is someone I think who wants to make connections outside of his own of, like four walls of his mind, you know? Yeah, there's that moment where where Willie is sitting and watching Ava pack. Like he's sitting there in his shirt sleeves. He's got his legs sprawled open. He's just he's kind of scowling as he watched her. And and I'm like, there's like a little bit of Brando going on here. <laughs> like the kind of vibe that he's exuding is very like Brando in the 50s. And compared to that, like yeah, Eddie's openness is really remarkable. I mean that that pairing those two. Are, are, I mean I guess it's the, back to the honeymooners mm-hmm. thing. Just mm-hmm. um, I. I like how oh that's the honeymoon (laughs) like this whole time i was like i guess i see the honeymoon but of course the the black and white and then he's got his his little sidekick there and and just i mean i think you can broadly say that well he's a bit of a loser right i mean you know i mean i i wins at the track a lot he he wouldn't say that though he wouldn't say that but i think we would maybe characterize him as such (laughs) um so that the fact that he has the sidekick who's really admiring of him and and really you know is attached to his hip is just that's part of the charm of the eddie character to me and richard edson's performances uh is a a treat but back to this idea of misconnections too i mean there's just a a lot of like little moments um there's that bit um early in the film where she answers telephone call from somebody core she guy. describes as core guy oh core guy <laughs> he's like it's a good, solid american name oh. core guy. <laughs> she's like well it's <laughs> actually it's actually a corgi right. it's a corgi dog he's like, that would explain why she had trouble understanding yeah exactly like, speak slower don't answer corgis are again. known for not enunciating and, and, <laughs> and speaking very quickly and, and jarmouche loves his malapropisms i mean they, they appear more in down by law, but here you get stuff that whole bit about choking the alligator, right? <laughs> trying to trying to teach her some some <laughs> piece of English that that is completely wrong. That is a very Jarmusch thing to do. He would he would do that many times in uh, future films. And I mean, there's the obviously there's the whole ending of the film where everybody kind of misses each other. Oh, yeah. You're really not sure what exactly happened on the plane. But for me, one of the big misconnections in this film is the characters in Miami. There's mm-hmm. just this this sense. I mean, I've been to Florida in winter it, the bleak miserable windy like cold mm. we're wearing 12 sweaters on the beach kind of thing like they must be pretty far north yeah, in florida like they just crossed over yeah. the state line <laughs> they're like five minutes and they're into florida and they're like bring on the the palm trees and the oranges <laughs> wait what's going on here and it's like if they'd made it down to miami this would have been a very, very different. Well, actually, it probably wouldn't have been a very different story because it's Jarmouche. But <laughs> they would have had a very different experience, both like weather-wise and just in terms of like the, the nightlife and the opportunities that they might have had. But they they kind of stop and give up and go to the dog races and lose all their money. And there's just uh, there's a feeling there that the beautiful things that they have in their imagination are potentially waiting for them significantly farther south. And they just, they never think to make it there. Or have the resources to get there either. I mean, I think they've got $500 in a car. What more do you need? Maybe maybe so. Maybe so. And they, 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 I guess they they gain enough between, uh, Ava's ill-gotten money and and what they end up winning back at the horse races for him to get on the plane to Budapest. That's another which, which, uh, mixed uh, connection uh, that I had not uh, even thought oh, about. Totally. And then, between and then, the between the drug dealer and mm-hmm. the person, oh, yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, yeah. And then and obviously the then, identical hat who shows up five <laughs> minutes later, <you> know, <laughs> yeah. not even that later. That was the producer yeah. of the film, by the way. Oh, Sarah, was it Sarah really? Driver? Sarah oh, right. Driver, yeah, is the one who shows up as the uh, as the actual dealer. But I, I love that bit. And I love the bit where where the plane is flying overhead and and. Uh, Eddie says, Willie, what are you going to do in Budapest? <laughs> and I mean, part of the humor there is we know what he's going to do in Budapest. He's going to kind of murf around like he has in every other city that we've seen him in. Yeah, is he, and He's going to he, speak Hungarian. Is he going to be able to get back even, really? Yeah. And it depends on who ended up with the money, although it seemed like he ended up with the money. Well, maybe. I don't know if he knows what to do with it. I, I think it depends on whether they have horse races and or poker games in yeah. Budapest. And it's, and it's, it's a great little absurdist touch to have this tiny airport 
have one flight to all of Europe, <laughs> and, it, and it is to Budapest. It's like, is there any other flight anywhere between, uh, today? Between Ava and Willie being able to like walk up to the counter and buy a ticket for a flight that's leaving in like forty five minutes, and these characters being able to like drive across the country without even like considering fuel costs, really kind of mar- the, the transportation in this movie really marks it as a movie of nineteen eighty four. And so does I mean, or nineteen fifty. Yeah, this is a New York that's not there anymore either. Mm-hmm. It's r- remarkable to. To, to see his crappy apartment, but it's above like what looks like sort of not not even what we think of as an area of Manhattan anymore, but it's it's a Lower East Side. There was um, sort of the you know a, a New York type. I'm not sure that that, that I mean I think it's uh, dressed up a little for this movie, but I, but I you know there's whatever a real world archetype they're drawing from is probably this, is sort of the same. New York sort of hipster doofus from which uh, 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 Cosmo Kramer came on Seinfeld. You know, uh, the, uh, a friend of mine described this type so well and I'll get the wording wrong but it's sort of like someone who thinks that they are making things happen just because they're where things are happening you know just sort of like I'm in I'm in New York and this is maybe all about me in some way but anyway yeah we're, we're drifting but 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 um but I do actually want to talk about it as a product of the 80s. Jay Hoberman, who at the time was a critic for The Village Voice and now writing elsewhere, placed this in the context of movies about aliens in America. His list includes E.T. and Moscow on the Hudson and Coming to America, characters where you see America through their eyes. We could add Splash or Brother from Another Planet to that list. I think this fits in there pretty well. That's a really interesting description, just because all of the movies on this list, to my mind, are doing pretty different things in terms of big comedy or like science fiction fantasy versus analyzing the human experience. This seems, I guess, less like it's it's analyzing America from the perspective of foreigners and more like it's analyzing America from the perspective of people who define themselves by being in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a really interesting comparison, but I'd probably have to sit with it a while more before I, I could really accept that, that this movie comes from the same place as E.T. and Splash. Something that that just makes me think of is the fact that none of these characters who have come to America have come there to do anything in particular that we are told about, like the whole idea of like going to America to change your life or pursue something that you can't in your home country. Like they're not doing that here. They are doing nothing more or less, you know, which I think is a interesting take on the, the American dream, if you will. Well, I think one difference, too, is that you have usually one side or the other. You usually have an immigrant, and then you have somebody who understands America and has been been here and is, you know, quote-unquote, normal. I mean, so you, and that's a typical fish-out-of-water type of contrast between somebody who's never been to America, say, Eddie Murphy's character coming to America, and then the, all the normal people who have been here for a while and kind of know how things go. But with Stranger Than Paradise, you have somebody who pretends to, to have that kind of knowledge, but really what you end up having are various and sophisticated levels of estrangement within the country, uh, because it's not it's not as if Willie is fully in that melting pot. He's alienated in his own way. He doesn't know America all that well he's not he is still you know very much an, an immigrant who doesn't want to be i suppose and then ava brings what she do, brings to america and, and brings a certain amount of knowledge or interest in the culture which is fat, interesting in its own right and then aunt lottie is that person who is going to be who she is she's going to bring hungary to cleveland and that's that's that there's no assimilation there whatsoever i think ava in a way kind of trains to bring her version of america to america like this is oh, okay. screaming jay hawkins uh, um, kind of leading with that is sort of like that's been her her portal to what America is, and, and uh, she's going to stick with it no matter what because uh, uh, he's a wild man. And that's the <laughs> that, that's the Memphis. I mean, that, that's that reminds me of the Japanese characters in, mm-hmm. in uh, Mystery Train too. Just like they have an idea of what that place is and what America is, and that's their understanding. And, and they get to meet Screaming Jay Hawkins, yeah. uh, who has a role in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I just when I look at these films, I mean, I see some films that are about people trapped unwillingly in America and trying to get back. You know, Brother from Another Planet is about somebody like fleeing a terrible situation. Splash is about somebody looking for love. Coming to America is about somebody looking for love and planning to go back to where he came from. Like there's just, there's so many different relationships here with the place of origin that for me, it doesn't really rhyme very well with a movie that is, that's so 
specifically about people who seem to have a, a pretty clear perspective on how much of their place of origin they want to bring with them, which is not much at all. But I think you could say, I mean, if you're talking as broadly as aliens in America, you could say that all of these films are trying to look at the country from a, some sort of a fresh perspective. Right. And that perspective is from the other. Yeah, then that's sort of my take on it. And that's that's what I was thinking he, what he meant by that was sort of like just having someone who's not used to the situation forces us who are uh, to look at it through their eyes. Sort of. But I mean, is anybody – you say everybody in this movie is an exile, but are there any of them really the other? I mean, I, mm. I think what makes them relatable and interesting is that they're, they're all kind of us. Mm. You know, they all – they all seem to know who they are and fit in a lot better than the outsiders uh, in a lot of these movies. I, th I think Willie is concerned with being the other. I think he does not want to be the other. And I think that is maybe how the idea of the alien America kind of factors in. Like when I, we keep going back to the dress, but the dress is just so good when he, when he gives it to her and he's, he's like, um, this is what you wear in America, mm -hmm. you know, or, or when he tells her not to go to a certain street because, you know, like, you know, she could be taken advantage of as a, as a foreigner or something, you know. Oh, and like, really? That's not how I read that. I just read it as straight up. You're a 16 year old. Some dude will attack. You. I mean, th that that too. But just like like there's a kind of an you don't under know what you're doing. Basically. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. There's there's basically just an undercurrent of concerned with being seen as an outsider hmm. from from willie and he manages that in his own life but i think he's like very concerned that eva will bring that out in him or in herself and if there's a sliver of opportunity here for willie if there's one thing that he can do by having eva in his presence is he can be the guy in the know whereas in other social situations perhaps that's not the case perhaps he is somebody who who isn't because he clearly doesn't have that comprehensive an understanding of what america is because he's clueless in a lot of respects but to her he's an absolute authority yeah. on on fashion and on the way people eat and uh you know what you call a uh, vacuum cleaner <laughs> but she's super dismissive of all these things. And that's why I think that that scene by the door is so fascinating to me. Because, you know, he tells her, well, here in America, we call vacuuming uh, squeezing the crocodile. Like here in America, we eat this terrible looking food. Here in America, we wear these weird baggy dresses. And she just she gives him the most contemptuous 16 year old look imaginable. <laughs> and we're invited to sympathize with her and to kind of laugh at him and how he's kind of weakly trying to put one over on her in one of those cases cases and trying to kind of control her and others and she's got his number but that thing by the door you know he's telling her parts of new york are dangerous and she blows him off and that's a sequence where i sympathize with him i would like to as a non-new yorker be told which neighborhood you don't want to just walk into and the speech that he gives her about you walk in here you know nothing about this city and you act like you've got it all figured out like i, I that was one of the few places in the movie where i really felt like he did have the authority to say what he was saying and then it came from an authentic place you know not this weird we're off balance with each other so i'm going to try to rectify it with weird crocodile jokes but like he honestly seemed to care about her yeah it's situation. the first sign that he really cares about her well-being in any way yeah but i also kind of see it as designating willie as someone who functions in america with like fear as his baseline like he, he barely leaves his house you know he he does not have a lot of connection you know going back to the idea of misconnections like he has kind of isolated himself i think out of fear of what's out there and not being able to engage with america as he thinks he should be able to whereas ava is just like defined by fearlessness like she just barrels ahead i mean if she she's a 16 year old coming to a country that she's never been to coming from we don't know what circumstances in hungary like just thinking of that opening shot of her striding down the streets of new york with her cassette player playing screaming jay hawkins and she goes past graffiti that says like us out of everywhere yankees go home and there's just this kind of like tough as nails aura about her you know and i see that line as more of a contrast of how they each approach coming to this country Oh, I'm fascinated with that. I didn't see fear in him at all. I just saw a willingness to be content with very little. I, I see the performance that he is putting on as one based in fear. I, I don't think that he is projecting an aura of fearfulness, but I am just reading that character as someone who is scared. He's scared of what people will think of him, and that keeps him from putting himself out there. 
is really interesting. And there's hours of TV he might miss if he, if he <laughs> right. left his apartment yeah. as well. He, so many he does, episodes of The Honeymooners he wouldn't watch. Yeah, he does manage to get out to be a card cheat, albeit yeah. <laughs> they have to have the lowest hanging fruit. Because if two guys show up dressed exactly the same, claiming not to know each other, and then when, you know, how, how long do you have to, you know, how long does it take you to figure that out? I guess long enough to lose six hundred dollars. <laughs> I mean, it also seemed like those guys were, were kind of saying, yeah, but, but stay in the game so we can win our money back. So contrary to what Jarmusch suggested, we've easily talked about what the film is about. We haven't talked about the style. I'm going to bring in a cliched phrase, but it's deceptively simple. It, there are 67 shots in this film. They're all master shots, no cutting. It just looks like you're letting the camera roll. It's tough to do, though. I mean, you, you know, the actors have to know what they're doing, and it takes uh, a lot of skill. The, his cinematographer is Tom DeSillo, who worked with him for a while and then, and then started making uh, films as a director in his own right. Films like Johnny Swade, and Living in Oblivion, and a documentary at the Doors a couple of years ago. So he's still, he's still out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing stuff, and he's also turns up as the uh, ticket agent here. He was kind of like Jim Jarmusch's Barry Sonnenfeld, sure. as Barry Sonnenfeld was the Coen Brothers back in the day. Yeah, exactly. And what he does here is, is remarkable. I mean, it looks a lot simpler than it is, but you get these beautiful shots, like the way the the TV glows in their faces at night, and in the apartment is just it's just so lovely. And and then the the two beaches we see in the film, you know, the one in Cleveland, the one in Florida, are both so um, expressively shot. I mean, and I love all the. Um, I'm a sucker for driving scenes anyway, but but the way he shoots those scenes is. It's quite good. So it's, you know. Well, I mean, I think you said there's 67 shots in the film. I bet you we could probably sit down and list them all Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, because each one registers so strongly. I mean, that, that shot that Genevieve was talking about, Ava walking down the street with her tape recorder playing the Screaming Jay Hawkins song with all that's in the background in the background. The famous shot that was put on all the poster art, I guess, of, of them looking out over a frozen Lake Erie. I mean, that's just, that's incredible. The, the shot that we talked about earlier of, of them just sitting there watching a movie to, the, the, to, the, together. The, the, the wonderful Cleveland hot, hot dog stand she works oh, at. Oh, yeah, it's great. And it's all just like, in every case, it's really about, because certainly I've watched a lot of Asian and European like long shot school of of cinema and, the, and uh, those cases uh, the shots are often held too long and what's happening within the frame is just not dynamic enough to justify the amount of time that we're spending in that in the frame and it's just the timing I guess of these shots the knowing when to start and when to cut that's just exquisite I mean that, that's Jarmouche I suppose but I think the photography by Desolo is is just beautiful I mean, and it's it's comic timing too I mean yeah like Jenny said like some of the cuts play like play like punch lines in mm-hmm. some ways. Or the the one year later card when, when like <laughs> nothing's changed. Yeah, <laughs> paradise, right? You have the title yeah. cards too, I guess. And, yeah, in the new world at, in, at the beginning, you mm-hmm. know, the title cards are something in this movie. I think one thing that's important here is that Jarmusch knows when to move the camera and when not, because a lot of the the Asian master shot cinema you're talking about is very much about a completely fixed frame mm-hmm. and observing something in it. You have a completely fixed frame in that the shot in the movie theater. You have a completely fixed frame when they're looking out over uh, Lake Erie, which is my favorite shot of the film, mm-hmm. mostly just because there's nothing out there. Yeah. Like, I mean, they could literally be looking at a wall painted white. It's just, it stretches on into oblivion. And it's like such a great metaphor for what's going on in this film as they kind of face these futures that are complete And the Midwest, too. Just the Midwest, <laughs> that shot. Isn't it? Did, it, did it just feel like home? <laughs> I mean, in a horrible freezing, like I want to go on, go and put on three more sweaters to walk on the beach kind of way. Yeah. 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 But that shot in the motel room where Ava wakes up and they've left her and they haven't left a note where she's pacing back and forth and kind of exploring the space she's in, the camera moves in that case. And it's pretty minimal, but it allows Jarmouche to define like all of that space while keeping like a kind of a medium shot on her. There's so many cases in this where I thought, are we going to get an insert shot now? Things like where she is, she's looking down at the money and opens up the envelope. And I kept noticing that he was just keeping like that fixed medium shot instead of we don't see what she writes. We don't see what she writes. We don't see what's in people's hands. We don't see, you know, when people are like looking at the the horse track newspaper, he doesn't do any of that stuff, which I mean, I think that's an interesting choice in and of itself. But mostly it's just he moves the camera when he has to. He moves it minimally, but he moves it. It's it's not just rigor for its own sake, Mm -hmm. uh, which he could. He could conceptualize it like I'm only going to do. 
you know, 12 shots in this film and they're in the camera's going to be a fixed position and that's the way things are going to go and people are going to laud me for that. Uh, but there's a little bit of that built in flexibility and, and, and range that definitely enhances the film quite a bit. The scenes in which the camera moves also highlights something that kind of contrasts with what you're talking about with that shot of the, the lake and everything is he spends a lot of time in this movie kind of cramming people into small spaces. Mm. And, you know, the camera is moving inside that small hotel room or inside Aunt Lottie's house or inside Willie's terrible apartment. And it just kind of heightens this feeling of not being able to move in this cramped space, which I think is just a really kind of funny and ironic way to approach a movie that is, you know, ostensibly about the wide open canvas of America, <laughs> you know, and it just spends so much energy cramming these characters into a car, you know, like they're, they're kind of like on top of each other, surrounded by nothingness. And just like emphasizing some of the the terrible details of the place, like I mean the that vacuuming scene starts with like a slow pan across like just the filth of that floor <laughs> <laughs> and up to the vacuum cleaner. My, my favorite detail is just the wires hanging everywhere in this place. Mm. It's like just plug them in, and let them hang. I, I, I like the hang. like the sad woman in a bikini, like torn mm-hmm. out of a magazine, just like taped above his bed. <laughs> you know what occurs to me now, though, all of these details, like. I picked up on them this time watching them, but but mm-hmm. that is a, that is a feature of the the age we live in because I don't th- I've never seen Stranger Than Paradise on the big screen and on VHS. I mean stuff like you know how dirty his floor is, which is pretty substantial. <laughs> uh, I don't think it registers nearly as much. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's a lot that we we wouldn't see, but I mean on a first time through, there's also just a lot you don't see because you're you're focusing on the characters sure. and not on well, the, the floor films. <laughs> I, think, I think what Scott is saying is hooray for digital technology. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I take everything back. You didn't think the film stock was too grainy on this, Scott? Oh, <laughs> you didn't think we shouldn't, we shouldn't be calling this a film? I'm, I'm at least I'm happy, of course, that Criterion did what they do and left Left all the grain grain in in there left the grain in didn't try to like slicken it up or anything like that you wouldn't remove the texture of a a canvas and flatten it out you have a poster then you know that's the same thing exactly Um, Exactly. this being an audio podcast uh, nobody out there got to see Scott pressing his hand to his heart in appreciation when he mentioned Criterion (laughs) I just as a as a Jermouche fan I just want to emphasize that tiny detail (laughs) thank you Uh, and should should we just uh, can I just say Aunt Lottie she's gone on not completely unmentioned but she She's just one of my favorite. She's characters. great at cards. She's great at cards. I am. She's the I am the Vinner. I am the Vinner. And I love uh, this long string of um, furious Hungarian. Furious Hungarian, but punctuated by little bits of English, like baby, like baby, mm-hmm. baby, baby. She's like mm-hmm. over and over again. Or when they finally, you know, peel away with Ava in the car and her just little rant. I guess it would get us in over the explicit line if I said <laughs> if I said what she says, but yeah. uh, it's a great line, and I, I I love that character. I just she is not an American, really. <laughs> I mean, she is she is a Hungarian aunt. She has the food, you know. She has the, the, she plays cards. She has that kind of a grim uh, authoritarian vibe to her. I just I adore that character so much. One of my favorite details is how uh, Willie goes from eating hungry man dinners. To actually eating in front of the TV uh, and eating, uh-huh. eating the the Hungarian soup that that's been prepared, yes, that's been prepared for him. I didn't think of that, but that that is pretty funny. I just really want a translation of that rant. I mean, like <laughs> I I absolutely understand why we don't get a translation. It's not germane to the film, but I find sometimes with with sequences like that, I find myself just super curious, like what exactly it is that she's saying to them, and like I, I want so badly I would to say have that you get transcribed. The gist of it. <laughs> Right, it's not pleasant. Well, you, you you get that she's angry, that she's been very, very protective of Ava. She doesn't want Ava to go to the movies unescorted with a man. Mm-hmm. So she definitely doesn't want her piling in some car and taking off with a couple of dudes to God knows where, coming back whenever. And apparently, the word baby comes up a lot. You know, yeah. she thinks she's too young. Yeah. So I, I think you can get the gist. I just I want to know what the words are. Especially a threatening character like Billy. Oh uh, yeah, you know? yeah. He's, <laughs> he's quite the vamp. Walking in my door, it's like those guys they just can't. Uh, Willie just apoplectic. I just realized all the men in this movie have diminutive names. Mm, yeah, yeah. Ed, Eddie, Willie, Billy, Billy. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but there you go. Not <laughs> not not man with money, according to the credits. Oh, <laughs> you sure he's not boy with money? What about core guy? 
Poor guy. <laughs> Poor boy. Well, that's 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 a riddle we can contemplate uh, during the break. Uh, we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Now it's time for your feedback on our most recent episode, which paired La La Land with The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Tasha, what do you have? Our first letter comes from Kiff Kandenhuvel, an actor in Los Angeles who brings a bit of expertise to the conversation. I love the show, but I need to push back on one thing, re La La Land, and the reality of what, in particular, Mia's journey is like. I am a working actor in Hollywood, and I can tell you from my experience, what is presented on the screen felt extremely true to form in terms of the day-to-day operation of being an auditioning character actor. From the traffic to negotiating schedule with your survival job to the way the casting director's rooms look and feel like, even getting discovered and brought into audition for a lead from a one-woman show. I feel that Chazelle very accurately brought that experience to the screen in a way that I just haven't seen that truthfully before. In the scene where Mia's audition is disrupted by the casting director's assistant, that moment of confusion and concern about whether to drop character or stay in the moment, it's a real dilemma, and it's happened to me before in auditions. Interesting. It's good to get that perspective. And and, and also, I, I looked up Kiff on IMDb. He gave us our la- his last name, so I mean, he doesn't mind. And he's been in a lot of stuff, including for IMDb briefly and, and, and La La Land. But I, I think a lot of us here and our listeners might know him as the sanitation worker who objects to Leslie Nope's plans to uh, allow women to work uh, in, in, uh, in, the, in the show Parks and Recreation. So, um, yeah, wow. it's nice to hear from a listener uh, who we've seen before. Yes, we've enjoyed your work, Kev. I think I was maybe the one who dropped the word unrealistic uh, regarding Mia's story. And I, I really only meant that in regards to the way that she is discovered by the casting director and a movie is built around her, which... If that happens to you, Kip, I am very happy for you. I, I, you know that that seems like the dream, which I think is the point in the movie that it is a, a dream and is not anything I think most working actors in Hollywood would expect for a director to just build a project around them based on seeing them in a, in a one woman show. But you know, hopefully, your experience is different. <laughs> that was that was my reaction too. It all it all felt perfectly real uh or as real as it needed to be until that i mean that's that is a bit of a stretch but i think it's it reminded me also of naomi watts in mulholland drive and her Mm -hmm. her audition scene i guess i think you just kind of have to let the fantasy element of the film sort of just take you to a place that you wouldn't necessarily be taken to in reality reality if a complete unknown is even mind-blowingly great in their you know one woman show they're not necessarily going to get an entire film built around them. On the other hand, you know, okay. you know, there, there, there's a machinery at, that works that puts people into places like, you know, one day there's no Matthew McConaughey and suddenly there's Matthew McConaughey everywhere. One day there's no Jessica Chastain and suddenly you can't go to a movie without seeing Jessica Chastain, you know. So uh, it's not like just rescued from obscurity necessarily, but... Uh, but you he's know, in Days of Conf- you know McConaughey's in Days of Confusion. Sure, he's sure. in the, he's in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film with Renee Zellweger. Sure, sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, an awful yeah. lot steps. of those there's people, steps. like you, you look back in the into their their past, and there's like a, a couple of like coming up films. Yeah, this reminded me a little of uh, of Rachel in Glee, and how there was like one hot moment where the story split, and she went off to New York, and it seemed like that show was going to be about the fact that somebody who's a really big deal in her Ohio. High school is maybe not a big deal in New York. And after about two episodes of that, she was discovered and they built an entire show around her. Mm. So it's kind of the kind of the same thing. And this movie, like La La Land, doesn't feel so much more realistic or grounded than Glee does, but that's still a very, very low bar to be hitting. I feel like we need to record an entire like supplement episode where Tasha gets to respond to all of us on La La Land because I'm still like so upset that you couldn't be part of that conversation. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's favorite favorite film of the year. Yeah. Uh, real quick, I do just want to highlight something in Kip's letter that I hadn't really noticed or processed that uh, I really like is where he talks about the moment of confusion and concern about whether to drop character, or stay in the moment when the when her audition is is interrupted. Like that's something that is entirely in Emma Stone's performance, which I think, well, I mean, it may be in the script, but her performance is what sells that like very, very tiny moment. And 
I think I said in our La La Land discussion that her performance, I think, compensates for a somewhat thinly drawn character. And that's just another really good example of that. I'm also I'm curious. Uh, I, I, we want to hear stories, Kif. We want to hear <laughs> how uh, how you encountered this and what decision you made, because I can really see from that moment and from how Stone plays it that it's a difficult moment to be in or you're you're deep in character and you think you're bringing across something important and you see how unimportant you are to some some people in the room by all means write in and tell us how you did navigate that we also received a note regarding a detail we might have missed in the umbrellas of shared work scott would you like to share it uh sure uh, julius kassendorf who we uh, know of course from the, the dissolve and the salute we go way back we go way back uh, he writes you did a delightful job going through umbrellas okay thanks thanks julius I'm... Uh, oh wait there's more <laughs> Uh, but but there's one note in the Umbrellas of Cherbourg that seemed to fly under the radar, and I kind of wanted to highlight it. Genevieve finds out she's pregnant with Guy's daughter while he is still deployed. She writes to him and tells him he has a daughter on the way. But then she moves on without him and takes his daughter with her. Though Guy is in a not terrible place with Madeline and their son, he's still sore about Genevieve taking their daughter away from him. During their final meeting, when Genevieve asks if he wants to meet their daughter Francois, his reaction is immediate and extreme. Regardless of how solidly everybody ends up, whether or not Genevieve is happy with Cassard, they never have children of their own, whether or not Guy is satisfied with Madeline, that's one major life choice that hits a down note for most fathers. Genevieve's invite isn't for Guy to be involved with Francois's life, but to meet his daughter, maybe, without even telling Francois that Guy's her real father. It's almost a bit of cruelty, and Francois's absence will remain an empty part in Guy's life. That separation heightened the sadness of the ending for me. Hmm. Solid point. And I hadn't really looked at it quite that way before either. So that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to replay in my mind the immediate and extreme reaction Guy has to that moment because I, I can't picture it and I, I really wish I, I could. But it's also, I think we joked in that episode about Genevieve leaving her daughter in the car in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. And it does add a, another slight wrinkle to that in terms of like, not even like bringing her daughter out to meet her father. <laughs> it's just yeah. like a little extra bit of cruelty, maybe. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm interested by that. It does that particular resonance didn't strike me. I mean, I guess, I guess I'll have to look at it yet yet again to see if it does because the ending. <laughs> oh darn! Of the film, we have to watch Umbrella. I know we have to watch the Umbrella of Sherberg again, but but I think it's it's um, proper for him to refuse. It makes sense for him to refuse. Whether there was a contempt in his voice i'm not sure it never really registered that strongly for me but it did for julius as always we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 and we love getting those or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in Patterson and talk about Luke Costello, William Carlos Williams, and living in the 20th century. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be driving the country in a cramped car that may or may not make it to Miami. Miami.